0: A'udhu the min ash-shaytani r Bismillah rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Alhamdulillah, al hadana lihada wa ma kunna linahtadiyya lawla an hadana Allah. Thumma salatu wa salamu ala ashraf al-anbiya wa sayyidil mursaleen wa shafiil muddhibin. Sayyidina wa nabiyina abil qasim Muhammad. Allah sali ala Muhammad wa Muhammad. Allahumma sali ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. salatu wa salamu ala ahli baytah tayyibin Asri Ruhi wa Alamin Wa Alhamdulillah, once again we have this opportunity that Allah has given us to continue in this blessed month of Ramadan for this year. And our theme that we have been going over since the beginning of this blessed month is the commentary of Chapter 47 known as Surah Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alaihi Muhammad. And as we know this is one of the few chapters of the Quran named after one of the Anbi- one of the Anbiya. we have other chapters such as Ibrahim as Yunus um, and other, uh, Surah Nu obviously also and many other prophets are named by with chapters of, of the Qur'an. And also as we know we have chapters of the Qur'an which are named after non-prophets. So we have for example Surah Maryam no, named after the mother of Prophet Isa alayhi salam. We have Surah Luqman named after a, uh, a man originally from the northeastern African uh, northeast of Africa. A man who had wisdom, a man who was enlightened by Allah. Uh, And so we see that Allah uses, um, or many chapters of the Qur'an rather, are named after very uh, unique personalities. Again, some of them who are not even recipients of divine revelation. Tonight, as we continue, we're on session number 20. We're getting closer to the end of the chapter. Um, And tonight we're going to look at two verses, verses 34 and 35, under the theme of outcome of the disobedience to Allah and also Muslims having the upper hand. So we'll go right to the first verse for tonight, verse number 34. And Allah says, A'udhu min Indeed, those who disbelieve and who block people from Allah's way and then die as unbelievers, Allah will never forgive them. So there are a few things in here that I want to touch upon. Obviously, when you look at the translation, it makes complete sense. There's no ambiguity to this verse, unlike some of the other passages we have been reviewing, where translations are quite diverse, and opinions are diverse on the meaning. Allah is showing us, because if you recall how we began this chapter, or how Allah began the chapter, He began it by saying, أَلَّذِينَ kafaru. So the chapter began with the cont- in the context of de- dealing with the kuffar. A, it was either the, the mushrikeen of Mecca who were hell-bent on destroying Islam um, once the Muslims moved to Medina because as we said this chapter was revealed in Medina or we mentioned as another option it could be about the Jews of Medina who are also kuffar in the sense that they were not believing in the message of Rasulullah. So in in either case, whatever it may may be either the polytheists, the mushrikeen of Quraysh or some of the Ahlul Kitab primarily the Jews that were working against Islam Allah, Allah refers to them, He says, not only are they, who, are they who, people who disbelieve, but as we touched upon yesterday, they're also blocking people from Allah's way. Right? They are putting roadblocks, barriers, for people to reach Allah. We talked about this last night, I'll just mention it very briefly, that it's one thing for somebody not to want to believe in Allah. That's up to them on Yom Al-Qiyamah, on Day of Judgment, they'll have their own accountability. But what's worse than disbelief, is when you disbelieve and you begin to be an obstacle for people to believe. Like you see the new atheists who are outside on the, on the, in the world today and on YouTube, they have a, a massive presence. People who were born into Muslim families and they've left Islam, they have apostated. And you see the way they mock Islam, the way that they mock the followers, and the way that they put doubts into the minds of people who find their videos. They don't only have a problem with Islam, but they have a problem with us being Muslims. right? So for them, as Allah has mentioned, that they have a unique punishment as well because their crime is unique. And as Allah says in this verse, if they are to die as unbelievers, those who are actively working against Allah and the religion, Allah says, "Falan Allah will never forgive them. This Arabic word "lan." Where Allah says, Falan lahum lan is used in Arabic to mean never. It will never happen. Allah will never forgive them. So even in the Quran, you know, when Nabi Musa was speaking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Bani Israel come to Prophet Musa and they say, We want to see Allah in the flesh. Right? What does Allah reply to them? He says, Falan He says, lan you will never see me. Right? Not in this world, not in the Akhirat. How can you see Allah when He doesn't have a physical body? Right? You can only see things that have a physical body and shape to them. And so we can't even see Allah on the Day of Judgment because there's no head, arms, legs, body. There's no parts that Allah has. Right? So Allah uses this many times in the Quran. Here He is telling us that these people will never be forgiven by Allah. Now if you remember in our previous session which was yesterday we looked at verse 32 and look at the similarities here between verse 32 on the right hand side and verse 34 on the left verse 34 started innal ladina kafaroo wasaddu an verse 34 what we're looking at tonight Inna ladina wasaddu an the exact same wording Allah is using the only part that changes is the end part But those who disbelieve are both spoken about and they block people from the path of Allah is mentioned in both verses. The only difference as we see on the first verse which we looked at last night, verse 32 is where Allah spoke about those people who are against the Messenger of Allah as well after the truth had been made known to them so they were actively being disbelievers even though they acknowledged and accepted that the religion that Allah's Messenger was bringing is the truth. But then Allah mentions, right, that he would never, um, wh- wh- whatever they try to do would never harm Allah. You and I, or non-believers, can never harm Allah in the least. Allah obviously is Al-Aziz, al qawi he's all-powerful, almighty. So the two groups are, I mean the two verses speak about the same people, those who disbelieve and block people from the path of Allah. And their outcome basically are two things. One is that all of their good actions will become invalidated, as Allah mentioned in the verse from yesterday, where He says, All of their actions will be null and void. And what we see in the verse today, That they will never be forgiven by Allah. So these are obviously people who are at a level of, um, you know, where there is no turning back for them. Now, that doesn't mean that. Um, and we've mentioned this in the past, but I'll touch upon it again. We're not saying that every single unbeliever out there is destined for hell forever. Right? We recognize in the Qur'an, we have two groups of unbelievers, of kuffar. And here, when I ma- when I mention kuffar, I don't mean Ahlul Kitab. They're a separate category. But you have people who die today as unbelievers, but they don't know the truth. And then you have people who die as unbelievers, and they know the truth, Right? You have people who are in Canada, and I mentioned this a few nights ago maybe, that you have people, and I've met them in Canada, who have grown up in small rural towns, in Alberta, in Ontario, who've never left their town, their village in in Canada in the year 2020. And they've never met a person of color, they've never met a Muslim. They have no connection to Islam. They probably grew up as a farmer, raising livestock. They grew up maybe as a Christian, Allah would not be fair to put them into hell forever because they never heard about Islam. Right? Maybe they didn't have internet, maybe they're just so busy farming and doing their livelihood, they never were exposed to the message of Islam. And maybe, or, or you know, in addition to that, they maybe never met a Muslim. If they heard about Islam, it may have just been negative propaganda by some so-called Muslims who have committed acts of terror, and that's why we make the news a lot of times. We very rarely make news for good things we do, humanitarian projects. So Allah would not be fair if he were to put those kinds of unbelievers into hell. And then obviously we have other categories. You have people who were living between two prophets, like those that were coming before the time of Rasulullah and the era of Nabi Isa alayhi salam. Although we know after Prophet Isa or alongside him, there were other prophets. Nabi Zakaria was there, Yahya was there. Right? And we know that Nabi Yahya is the first cousin to Maryam a.s. So Prophet Jesus' is mother and Yahya are first cousins. Um, so there were prophets at the time of Prophet Isa. Right? But what about those people that came 200, 300, 400 years before Rasulullah? Who lived in Mecca, who lived in Yathrib. And they were not alive to see the birth of Rasulullah. They never were exposed to the Quran. Allah can't throw them into hell. Because they never had a message to accept or reject. And the same would go for children who were, let's say, before they become baligh, before they become of age and they pass away. Fetuses, you know, babies that are born or, you know, uh, stillborns. Women that have miscarriages, but that was still a human being that they were carrying. Allah can't put them into hell. Can He put them into heaven? That's another discussion. That's why we have chapter 7, Surah Al-A'raf. The chapter of the peaks, there's an entire discussion about what those peaks are and who will be on those peaks. And again, I, I won't go into that tonight, but just for us to understand that to die on the path of disbelief is not an automatic ticket to hell. Yes, if you are belligerent, you are actively working against Allah. You knew Rasulullah because, the, I mean, the Quraysh knew him as Asadiq and Al Amin. They trusted the Messenger of Allah with their wealth, their property, their gold. But they didn't trust him with their akhirat. They saw his miracles. I gave you the example of the miracle of the tree, the splitting of the moon. They saw all of this come from Rasulullah. And yet they they acknowledged him. They acknowledged Allah. But they rejected the Quran because it was probably because of personal motivation, because of their social status would have changed coming into Islam. Now, you know, they are equal to the blacks, to the slaves, to everybody else. It would have been an economic... um, economic uh, loss to them. They would have to start paying their zakat and various forms of charities. So for some of these people, they knew the Prophet as being the rightful um, final messenger, but because personal motivation stepped in their way, they rejected Rasulullah. And this is not just a theory. I remember meeting a university professor many years ago and he was one of the foremost experts in Islamic studies in the world, probably researching and studying Islam and teaching at a major European university for over 40 years, translated many books from Arabic to English, but he was still a Christian. He still drank alcohol, he still lived the life of a Christian. Right? So his study of Islam and his PhDs and his classes and his writings were not because he was a devotional scholar. He was what we would call a scholar for dollars. His job was to teach Islam. Right? It's like, you know, let's say a youth gets a job at a pizza shop or a, or a hamburger place. They might never want to eat a hamburger or pizza, but it makes good, they get good money in, in that part-time weekend job. So they get a job flipping burgers because it pays money. And it's a good weekend opportunity, but they don't care to eat it. He didn't care about Islam as a way of life. It was a way to make a paycheck. So those kinds of people, if they actively knew Islam as being the right way and they were teaching it to others and they were translating and they didn't follow it, obviously Allah is going to hold, hold that kind of a person to a much different level than somebody who had no understanding of this religion. Moving on to the next verse for tonight, I want to look at this topic of peace. Right? Peace through war or as we say, peace through peace. We know that the Qur'an talks about peace not a lot. There are few ayat here and there that discuss peace. And probably I would be safe to say there are more ayat of the Qur'an about war, about jihad, about qital, than there are about peace. But that doesn't mean Islam is a religion of war or that it condones or in, uh, uh, that it you know acknowledges that we should always be in a state of war. No, Allah says, that peace is better, peace is the best state to be in. This religion we follow is called Al-Islam, submission. Right? And you get peace through submission. You find peace of mind, you find ease, you find tranquility to submission to the through submission to the will of Allah. But the question that I want to pose, which we're gonna see in the verse for tonight, the next verse, and then we'll conclude. And I'm gonna sh- um, back it up with evidences from other ayat of the Quran is what does Islam consider to be fair in terms of war and peace? Is there ever a time where the Qur'an acknowledges that war is better? Or war is a necessary evil, we can say? Before I go to the verse, let me give you this quotation from Ayatollah Nasim Makarim in his Tafsir Namuna. So he says that people of weak faith often raise the issue of peace as a response to escape what they perceive to be the burden of jihad. Peace is certainly very good. However, the only peace which is valuable is that which serves the lofty goals of Islam and ensures the dignity and honor of the Muslims. Not peace that leads to the humiliation and embarrassment of the Muslims. So he's giving us basically the introduction to this verse because keep in mind, as we mentioned probably on the fifth or sixth night, when we refer to that verse where Allah says that the people who had a marad, a sickness in their hearts, would come to Rasulullah and they would be anxiously awaiting revelation. They wanted wahi to come to them. And then the Quran says, but when a verse comes about qital, about fighting, those people who have that sickness in their hearts, they run away. They were basically... They, they were showing that they were believers, they, they were interested in more revelation, but when something comes that doesn't quite fit with our narrative or their narrative, that's when things begin to change. Right? We mentioned even some of our own personal examples. As, as believers, right, we follow the Qur'an, we follow the sunnah of the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them. When it comes to certain aspects of religion, Right? We love fasting, let's say. We fast in 30 days. We, fa- we pray the, the daily prayers. We do all of the actions that we find to be conducive and easy for us to do and don't break the bank. But then if somebody says to you, by the way, hajj is wajib on you, you go, like, okay, I'll go for hajj. And then you tell them, by the way, it costs $15,000 now because of all of the fees and taxes that are being implemented on the hujjaj who go to Mecca and Medina, maybe then we begin to, well, you know what, maybe this religion is, you know, I'll, I'll stick to praying and fasting, but this hajj thing, you know, it's, it's it's a lot of money to spend. Or we're told you have to give your zakat, or you have to give your khums, you have to give in the way of Allah. Right? We, many people will gladly devote time to the cause. They'll come and clean the center and vacuum and, you know, shovel the snow and all of these great things. But then you come and say, we have a fundraising donate. We have, we have a fundraising drive. We need to raise 50,000, 100,000, 200,000. And those who love Islam and who are devoted, they'll have no problem. But those who are maybe a weak of faith and who are kind of not fully and committed to the deen, that's where those people begin to. As the Quran says, in this case, they make excuses. Right? The call for jihad came. The Prophet said, look, we're going to be attacked. We need to go and defend the, the, the territory. And they would say, you know what, it's better to have a peace treaty. Let's just negotiate with them. Let's not go to war because, you know, war is ugly and we're going to have wit- widows and orphans and men will die. So let's just have peace. And so this is the backdrop behind where this next verse comes into play. Uh, verse number 35. And so Allah says in it, "Falatahinu." Wa إِلَى وَأَنْتُمُ الْأَعْلَوْنُ وَاللَّهُ مَعَكُمْ أَعْمَالَكُمْ So when in war- warfare with the enemy, again keep in mind the words in italics are an explanation, they're not the actual verse of the Qur'an. But Allah says, so when in warfare with the enemy, do not be faint of heart. فَلَا ta'hinu, And don't cry out for peace. Right? Where he says, فَلَا wa إِلَى don't cry out for peace that we want to you know stop the war and let's just go and have a peace treaty which will bring about your humiliation when you have the upper hand antum aalon you the muslims are having the upper hand you're in a battle you're about to win don't go and say let's have a peace treaty now and if the enemy comes and says oh we submit we give in right what do you do do you just say okay let's 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 you know stop the war no allah says Uh, when that happens and you have the upper hand continue the war and he says always bear in mind that Allah is with you Wallahu ma'akum and he will never diminish the reward of your good deeds so now there's a a very interesting discussion amongst the commentators of the Quran because on one hand you and I see this verse where Allah says you know um, if you're in the middle of a war you're in the battle and your Muslims are approaching victory and now the enemy says, we give in, we submit. Are we, are we supposed to just throw in the towel and say, okay, let's have a peace treaty? Now, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this from a theoretical point of view because this verse obviously comes to the prophet 1400 years ago when they are actually dealing with wars face-to-face with enemies on the battlefield and people are dying. So we're looking at it from a theoretical perspective and maybe what would have been done at that time. But also let me say this, and I mentioned this in the past, in 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 our various previous tafsir sessions, that we also need to look at these ayat of the Qur'an in our contemporary era. We don't have, at least in Canada, alhamdulillah, we're not fighting a, a physical war against an enemy force. We see it happening in other parts of the Muslim ummah where they are being attacked. But that doesn't mean that this verse doesn't have a relevance, right? Because we know that we are being engaged in a... Invasion against our religion, against our ideology, right? The secular culture is against Islam, it's against all religion really, but against Islam particularly. They are trying to erode our Islamic values, whether it's intentionally or unintentional. So in a way we are in a onslaught against the enemies, but it is a cultural war right and this is coming through many forms right it's not just one or two ways it's through our televisions it's through the internet it's through the content that our children are watching on netflix and youtube and all these you know channels some of the content coming on there maybe it is geared towards putting doubts in the in the minds of muslims right recently netflix had this doc this movie called the messiah if i'm not mistaken came out a few months ago. They finally, they, they, they stopped it, the production of it, but basically it was a, uh, eight or ten parts came out where it was portraying this man coming, apparently to be Prophet Jesus, the second coming, or Imam Mahdi, or some heavenly figure from, from, from God who's sent to basically, you know, fulfill the role of the savior of humanity. Right? I'm not saying that that is intentionally created but you look at a lot of the movies that are on these uh, platforms and they all take a tint of um, showing the Middle East in a negative way, the Muslim countries. You can see that amongst a lot of the doc- documentaries and movies that are out there. My point being is that we are involved, brothers and sisters, in a cultural invasion against Islam. They've realized that you cannot bomb 1.8 billion Muslims into submission, can't drop bombs in every country. But what better way than to attack the spirituality of our children, of our women, of the men, right, break away at the Iman, say that hijab isn't wajib, say that, you know, this isn't an obligation, this is not needed to be a Muslim, break away at the religious foundation, and you can then subvert Islam, you can destroy this religion. And obviously we know that Allah will never allow Islam to be destroyed, He's told us many times in the Quran, that this religion will prevail over all other religions, وَلَوْ karihal and وَلَوْ كَرِهَا Even if the polytheists and disbelievers try to destroy Islam, they can't do it. So in this verse, we have a picture that Allah gives us that you're in the battle, you're in the middle of war, enemy comes to submit, what do you do? Scholars say that this verse tells us that you as Muslims continue the fight. You don't give up. You don't say, okay, let's sit down at the UN and negotiate and have a peace treaty. But then there comes a problem because we see a verse of the Qur'an where there appears to be a contradiction. And you and I know that there are never contradictions in the Qur'an. If there is contradiction in the Qur'an, it's because our minds perceive there to be a contradiction. Two verses talking against one another. Two ayat which are contradictory. Ayat of Ahkam, for example. And Allah would never... It's impossible for there to be contradictions in the Quran. So, what happens is we see a verse like this from chapter 8, verse 61. And if they, the enemies, incline to peace, incline to it also. And put your trust in Allah. Surely He is the All Hearing, the All Knowing. Now, how do we reconcile this? Right? This is a This is one example, there are other examples in the Qur'an where you and I will find multiple ayat that seem to give a different ruling. Is it A or is it B? Does one verse right, one verse is wrong? Are both applicable? How do we understand them? So we have, I mean we meaning the ulama, the scholars who delve into the tafsir of Qur'an and try to understand these apparent contradictions, again I'll say apparent because they are not contradictions in reality. They have to understand them in the light of a couple of things. One is they have to understand them in the light of history of revelation. We mentioned probably in the very first or second session that ayat of the Qur'an and chapters are either Makki or Madani. Either pre-Hijrah or post-Hijrah. So scholars who are delving into the Qur'an and trying to understand the rulings, they have to see, did this verse come down before migration or after? Because there's a possibility, because Allah speaks about this in the Qur'an, that he may abrogate. One ruling may come, years later, as we know Islam and the Qur'an took 23 years to come. Maybe 15 years later, that rule is now, another rule supersedes a previous verse. First 13 years in Mecca, as an example, the Muslims were not allowed to fight or even defend themselves militarily. They moved to Medina, the Prophet establishes Yathrib, it moves changes it to Medina, it's now the city of the Prophet. And then Allah gives a verse later on that udina liladina yukatilu, that permission has now been granted for the Muslims to fight and defend themselves because they have been wronged. So initially they were not allowed, and then the ruling changed. So scholars here they say that there could be a couple of things. One is that they say that this could be in relation to various scenarios that the Muslims find themselves in, and the only way that really this could be applied is if you have a just leader for the Ummah, the Prophet, or one of the rightful successors of the Messenger of Allah, they would determine, do we continue to fight, or do we go and have a peace treaty, that's up to them, because they're the leader of the Ummah. Or we have an opinion which is in the hadith, for example, this hadith from the commander of the faithful Imam Ali, may God's peace and blessings be upon him, where he was asked about this verse, the verse that we're looking at from chapter 47, and the verse that I just mentioned from uh, chapter number 7, and he says that this verse from Surah Muhammad abrogated the other verse. So initially, because Muslims did not have the upper hand, they were small in number, Islam was still a, a growing religion, if the call came for peace, they needed to do that, based on their own, personal, based on the own circumstances of the Ummah at the time. Because Allah recognizes there's a small number of Muslims, they cannot fight, they cannot win the fight. So if the enemy sees that the Muslims get, are getting the upper hand, but they're still in the smaller number, the rule was what? If you have the opportunity, go have peace negotiations. Because peace at that time when Muslims are, are small in number, is better than losing the war. So in that time, they were told, okay, now you have peace. But then later on, as Islam grew, the state of the the Muslim state is established in Medina, Muslims are gathering in number, there are large numbers of Muslims. Now the dynamics of Islam change. And now it's not about self-preservation and giving up and having peace. Now it's like, look, we have the upper hand, we're a larger number, we're the majority, we're gonna fight to the end. Because if we give in, that can signal that the Muslims are weak when they're large in number. So the situation changes and so ayat have to come to recognize, for the Muslims to recognize that now the dynamics are changing, the rules have to change. You, we have seen that throughout the history of Islam. Fasting in Ramadan did not come in the first 13 years in Mecca, it was way in Medina. Right? Why? Why couldn't Muslims fast in Mecca? It's the same climate. It's no different. The the temperature is there. The times would have been the same. The rulings would have been the same. But they had to progress and grow. The prohibition of alcohol has always been there. But because it was hard for Muslims to stop cold turkey in Mecca, they were, I won't say they are allowed to drink, but it was accepted. It was tolerated from them. But once they get to Medina, that's where the complete prohibition comes. You cannot drink anymore. So the rules had to progress with the progression of the Muslim community and their own spiritual advancement. I'll continue in the next, I'll, continue, I'll conclude in the next about 15 minutes. I want to look at this topic tonight from the point of view of three verses of the Quran about war and peace in Islam. Is war always bad? No. Every time there's a war in the last 20-25 years, we have these anti-war groups, anti-war movements in Canada and around the world where they will have protest rallies, it happens in all the major Canadian capitals, they'll go to Parliament Hill in Ottawa, they'll protest against the war. We saw that happen after 9-11 when Afghanistan was illegally attacked. We saw that when Iraq was illegally attacked in 2003. Every time there is a war, you have people who will stand up and protest the war. And to an extent, they're right. And you know, when we, if we go to those rallies in, at one level, we are right to protest war because we never want to live in a state of war. <coughs> we never want there to be war on earth. We never want there to be indiscriminate killing of innocent men, women, and children. It's a reality, right? And we see it today. For those who are seeing what's happening in Ukraine... You know, millions of people have been displaced, Muslim and non-Muslim. Thousands of men have probably been killed on both sides. People have lost their homes, their livelihoods, everything that meant anything to them is gone. They've had to flee by car, by bus, by train. Whatever way they could get out of the Ukraine, they have tried their best. So we never want to say that we condone war. No, we never condone war. Whether it's a Muslim country being attacked or a non-Muslim country. At the end of the day, they're all human beings. But Allah gives us three times in the Quran where war is a just and necessary evil. Not that we initiate a war, but we are allowed to take part and to basically bear arms. Right? And there are at least three examples. There might be more, but I've, I've gathered three for tonight. <coughs> The first example comes in chapter number 2, Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 251. It's a part of a verse, it's not the entire verse, but Allah says, nas al ardh. And if Allah had not enabled, facilitated, permitted people to defend themselves against one another, corruption would surely overwhelm the earth. You look at what's happening in Ukraine, again a prime example because it's front and center. Can anybody rightfully say, anybody who's a part of the anti-war movement, can they honestly say that Ukrainians do not have a right to defend themselves? Nobody would say that. That would be foolish. You know, everybody with a with an ounce of intellect will say the Ukrainians have every right to defend their territory against the Russian invasion. Nobody can say otherwise. And not only that, look at our brothers in Palestine, in occupied Palestine. Can anybody say they don't have a right to defend Al-Aqsa and that holy ground in their homes when land has been stolen from them for the last 60 years? No, they have every right, God-given. And if you want to follow the UN Charter, they have every right. The Palestinians have every right to defend themselves, to defend their homes, defend their land. And if it were otherwise, anything other than that, then their entire country would have been stolen from them. As we see, and if you look at the maps, West Bank and Gaza Strip, Every day they're taking more and more land. The settlers are encroaching on the rights of the Palestinians who are, by the way, not only Muslims, they're also Christians amongst them who are also equally being harassed and having their land confiscated, having their olive trees destroyed, having their livelihood completely annihilated. But nobody can stand up and say they don't have a right to defend themselves. If Ukrainians have a right, and we see, you can see this from Canada, from America, from Europe, we have people who are for, uh, retirees from the military. They're going and volunteering in the Ukrainian army. Why don't Palestinians have the same right? Why don't people in Yemen have the same right? Why don't people in Bahrain have the same right? Why don't people in Afghanistan have the same right? If you're going to have one rule for Ukraine, is it because they're blonde haired blue eyed, white skinned Anglo-Saxon Christians that they have a right to defend themselves, but brown Skin Muslims don't have a right to defense. No, Again, it's hypocrisy, and I've talked about it in our Friday prayers. Blatant hypocrisy of the Western world that Ukraine can have billions of dollars of weapons sent every week. Joe Biden seems to be pumping money and, and weaponry into their military. Again, which we acknowledge they have a right to defend. But then give the Palestinians weapons. Give them F-15s and fighter jets and surface to air missiles as well. Let it be a just, and an even balance on both sides. So Allah says people have a right to defend themselves. So we would tell the people who are anti-war that, yes, we accept the fact that we are anti-war, but if there is a war being lodged against an innocent people, they have a right to self-defense and self-determination. Number two, where does Allah tell us that we have a right to defend ourselves? Chapter 22, verse 40. We have a right to defend religion and houses of worship. Again, a part of the verse. Walola nasa bibad, la sawamiu, wa salawatun, wa masajidu, kathiran. Were it not for Allah's repelling some people by means of other people, monasteries and churches and synagogues and mosques where Allah is regularly worshipped and his name is mentioned much would surely have been pulled down, have been destroyed. Allah is telling us, brothers and sisters, that when religion is being attacked, whether it's a synagogue from the Jewish community, we have a a God-given obligation to defend a synagogue. We can't let a synagogue burn or be destroyed. We have no problem with Jewish community. Let them follow their teachings. We have a problem with Zionism, but from the Jewish faith, we have no problem. Allah is clearly saying if monasteries are are attacked we have to defend it. If churches are being destroyed we defend them. If synagogues, if masajid are being destroyed or attacked Allah says he has allowed people to one group to fight against another group to defend these houses of worship. We know even I think in the UN charter you're not allowed to destroy houses of worship. Even if it's a war in a Muslim country You're not allowed to bomb a church and say, Oh, it's Christians, who cares? No, Allah cares. Allah does not want houses of worship to be destroyed. We don't believe what the Christians believe in Trinity and this and that, but we cannot destroy houses of worship. So if it ever happens and there is a war, then as the Quran tells us, people have to stand up for the rights of minorities, especially religious minorities. And Allah shows us clearly in this verse That had that not happened, Allah says you would have seen. All of these houses of worship would have been destroyed. Allah would no longer be worshipped on earth. I would rather see Christians worship God in... They're not all Trinitarians. There are Christians who are Unitarians who believe in one God. I would rather see a a church stay rather than that church get sold and turn into a bar or a nightclub. Which is happening across many countries unfortunately. As much as we don't follow and accept Christianity, but I'd rather a church on my corner rather than a bar or a nightclub or a casino. And that's happening. Churches are being converted into these other places nowadays. So this is a second example of the Qur'an. The third example, and we'll conclude with this for tonight, because we do have a presentation from Islamic Relief. I want to give them uh, the, the time that we've been, I've been asked to allot to them for tonight. Is that war becomes a means to which we can protect the defenseless men, women, and children from unjust tyrants? Again, a verse of the Quran, chapter 4, Surah An-Nisa, verse 75. Allah poses the question: What's wrong with you? What's your problem, Muslims? That you do not fight in the cause of Allah? أَلَّذِينَ رَبَّنَا أَخْرِجْنَا مِنْ هَذِهِ الْقَرِيَةِ مِنْ وَلِيًّا What's wrong with you that you do not fight in the cause of Allah and of the utterly helpless men, women and children who are crying out O oh, our sustainer, O oh, our Rabb, lead us forth to freedom out of this land whose people are oppressors and raise for us out of your grace a protector. And raise for us out of your grace one who will bring us relief, who will be our helper and assistant. It doesn't say if, if, if innocent people are being attacked, just sit back and let it unfold and watch it on CNN live. You know, the bombs raining down on the heads of innocent men, women, and children. And keep in mind this verse doesn't say Mustad uh, afin min al or min al Allah didn't say the oppressed from the Muslim ummah. He's keeping it open. People who are oppressed, who are utterly helpless. Again, you look at Ukraine. You look at Yemen. What's happening? Right, six, seven years Yemen has been bombed incessantly by this so-called coalition. The same coalition who one of the major groups is called the Khadim, the Khadim Harameen Haramain Sharifain. the custodians of the two holy shrines and they're killing innocent Yemenis it doesn't fit with the narrative of the Quran and the Muslim ummah is for the most part silent about it because again the best oil comes from Saudi right It's, it's the cheapest probably and if you speak out too much you might not get a visa for umrah or hajj so many of the scholars are silent on that although they see the videos of And if you want to fight against the Houthis, let's say, and their military, okay, let's fight them. But then you bomb a wedding, you bomb a school bus where there are children in that school bus, and you, oh, it's collateral damage. We made a mistake. Wrong intel. The same thing that America did when they fled Afghanistan when they had to run away a few months ago, and they killed that entire family, they bombed, they thought this man was bringing weapons from his car to the house. And they sent a drone and they killed the man. And it turns out he was carrying water bottles from his car to the house. And they killed an entire family. But Allah tells us, what's wrong with you? That you as human beings, as Muslims, you don't stand up for justice? You don't help those who are being oppressed around the earth? Men, women and children are calling out for help. They're calling out for support and as Muslims we watch it on television, we, you know, we watch it on, on, on prime time. <clears throat> we'll do a fundraiser, which is great, you know, I, I never want to knock fundraising, because fundraising at least is one way for us to be able to help those innocent men, women, and children. We can't go to the battlefield and fight, but our dollars can provide the support they need, the money to feed, to get water, to support the orphans, to help the widows, but as you and I see, brothers and sisters, that the Quran shows us, at least in these three ayat, and I haven't I didn't get a chance to go through others. There may be other ayat where Allah gives us this picture that look, war is ugly. War is never um, something that we should, you know, ever hope for. But war is sometimes a necessary evil, and sometimes peace is acquired through war. And again, that's not for you and I to determine, this is for Hopefully the religious scholars who have a very strong understanding of the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet and the Hadith. Scholars who are hopefully advising governments uh, in the Muslim countries especially of how to control and how to kind of maintain foreign policy. As long as they're not in the pockets of 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 the government. But we see brothers and sisters and with this that Islam shows us that although peace is the ultimate reality but sometimes war is necessary. But that's where we come in, that we have to do the best that we can do as believers.